Welcome to Common Ground Berlin, where we delve into important issues that matter to you in the German capital and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. It's been two years since Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, a war that has wounded and killed a half million people and sent millions of Ukrainians fleeing to the West. Some 60,000 of them live here in Berlin. And the war is not going well for Ukraine at the moment, which is generating fear that Vladimir Putin might set his sights on EU or NATO countries next, especially with the uncertainty of U.S. foreign policy in a pivotal presidential election year. Our episode today will get you up to date on what is happening in Ukraine and what it means to us here in Germany and the West. First, we'll hear from Ukrainian journalist Katerina Malofieva in Kiev, who we've had on the podcast before, and Nico Lange of the Munich Security Conference, who used to be chief of staff for former German defense minister Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer. I reached them via Zoom. So Katya, we'll start with you in Kiev. What is the mood in Ukraine right now? Are Ukrainians still optimistic about winning, or are more of them thinking about leaving Ukraine and coming west? Well, I definitely don't see any uh, sort of pessimistic mood. Of course, the second uh, anniversary of the Russian invasion to Ukraine brings more fatigue among civilians and the military because this is a war of attrition that Russia is launching against Ukraine. Definitely kind of emptied all of our energy. But we understand that 2024 will probably one of the most hardest year for Ukraine because uh, Russia uh, outnumbers us and uh, outgunned us. And we have now problems with uh, ammunition and uh, the loss of some core positions um, on the front line. And we believe that probably after Avdiivka withdrawal, um, there will be more towns uh, and cities taken by the Russians. So basically, we, this year, 2024, will be one of the hardest. But it doesn't mean that in the long run, Ukraine won't win because uh, the victory for Ukraine is the key priority. And almost every family has somebody who is fighting at war. So for us, it's a matter of importance here. Those who made their choice to leave Ukraine have left already. But those who stay living under extreme threat of the missile attacks and uh, risk to their lives, they made their choice to stay in Ukraine. Nico, does what Katya is saying reflect the mood at the recent Munich Security Conference? And is there fear that Russia will spread the war to other parts of Europe? I would not call it pessimism. I would call it seriousness. And yes, the mood was quite dark at Munich Security Conference. But it's also a little paradox because we heard from Katerina how the mood is in Ukraine and still the Ukrainian president Zelensky in Munich managed to be something like the psychological advisor to the Europeans in NATO saying to them, you can do it, trust in yourself, you are strong enough. Unfortunately, he gave that speech uh, and not the Western leaders gave the speech that would have been needed. And my impression from Munich was that the Europeans are still not doing what is necessary, not for Ukraine and not for their own security, but they need to get their act together very fast now. Well, President Zelensky and Vice President Kamala Harris have said that $60 billion in foreign aid to Ukraine, which at the moment is stalled in the U.S. House of Representatives, is something Ukraine can't do without, and that there is no, quote, plan B if lawmakers fail to pass it. So, Nico, what happens to Ukraine in the trajectory of the war if this bill fails to pass? 
I think there's always a plan B and a plan C, and there must be. I will come back to that. But when it comes to the situation on the front lines, unfortunately, already the projection of U.S. elections and the blockade in Washington is having an effect on the battlefield. We see the retreat from Avdiivka. We might see a difficult situation in Siversk, in Konstantinivka, maybe in Kupiansk as well. Uh, and that is because of Ukraine having to being very economic with the resources they still have because they cannot trust in more supplies coming in, especially when it comes to critical types of ammunition and supplies that always are coming from the U.S. Regarding Plan B, I think the U.S. has possibilities to deliver ammunition and equipment to Ukraine, even if the Congress is not approving this package. This is not the only way. The president has drawdown authority. The Pentagon could free more resources. Uh, it could be done with a regular budget that is available. So the U.S. has to look into this. And the Europeans have to step up. They have to get together, dig into the stocks they still have, find ways of bridging the gap that Ukraine is now facing until more industrial production kicks in by the end of the year. Katya, you've talked a bit about the mood at the front lines. How is this sort of wavering in U.S. support being felt on the battlefield? I mean, President Zelensky said in his weekly address that Ukrainian troops keenly feel the shortage of artillery, air defense systems, and long-range weapons. I speak to the military on the ground, and I know that Russia outnumbers and outguns us. And with regards to the military supply, Sometimes uh, Ukrainian forces, sometimes Ukrainian troops have to be very creative. Uh, they have so small amount of ammunition right now that they really economize it. And you can't really go lower, honestly. So if, for example, one artillery, let's say mortar unit uh, operating with SPG-9 produced somewhere in uh, Bulgaria, they have to use at least 18 shells per day, then they receive much less. They receive like roughly six or even three shells. So this is so little, you know, because as you know, when you're operating with um, uh, with a target, you need first uh, two shots for um, precision and the last one will be uh, to hit the target. Uh, I also spoke to people who were fighting in Kupensk and why Ukraine is losing certain areas, certain parts of the front in Kupensk. Given that this territory, let's say, is forestry, and uh, given that the heavy equipment cannot operate there, uh, Russians are shelling Ukrainian positions relentlessly, nonstop, and they have the uh, prevailing majority in the drones they're using that are supplied by China. So it's roughly one to six or one to ten. So one Ukrainian drone to ten Russian drones. And uh, the new strategies they started applying in towns like Avdeevka, they're using uh, guided missiles, like we call them CUPS, the guided missiles that are at least 500 tons that are absolutely like eliminating the city, uh, the towns, the areas. Uh, this is what they did to Bakhmut and this is what they did to Avdeevka. The next one will be Chasifyar and Kupensk because when the Russians attack, they attack without any consideration about the civilians who might be still living there. So do they, they with them. Um, with their own troops. You've seen probably in the videos from the drone operators that they are literally walking uh, on their own corpses. The military, Ukrainian military on the ground, they have been fighting 24 months now. It's very hard to get their 
uh, work leave and to have some vacation, basically, to go to see the family. And they're extremely tired and there is a massive fatigue happening. And uh, these uh, soldiers, at least 80-90% of them, want to be changed with some new forces coming, some new troops coming, because, you know, you cannot uh, fight properly when you are tired, when you're exhausted, right? So this is a situation, and whoever I speak to, they're always very grateful to the Western uh, military supply, Western military aid. But without it, without this Western aid, it's absolutely impossible to win the war because Russians are trying different tactics. And unfortunately, at this moment, they are uh, winning it. So are Ukrainians paying attention to what's happening in the U.S. Congress? Are they worried about it the way some European leaders are worried about it? Uh, we are worried about uh, what's happening in the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives, but I believe that the bill will uh, pass in the next three weeks because there are people who, even among the Republicans, who are looking for the ways around to make this bill pass. But the decisiveness might come only with one person. This is Donald Trump because he might want to uh, win the war or he might want to go on negotiations with Putin. So everything depends literally from one person. Nico, can Germany and or the EU make up for the lack of arms or financial aid to Ukraine if the U.S. support doesn't come to pass? There's no other option. The Europeans have to. That's why I'm saying they should get together now, not because of Trump, but because of European security. Ukraine is in Europe. If Russia wins in Ukraine, this will have a very negative effect on European security. It will put others into danger. That's why the Europeans have to get together now to bring this on track. France, Italy, Spain, they are far under the possibilities they would have to deliver more. Uh, Germany, I think, is in the role to take leadership. Unfortunately, so far, the Chancellor has written letters or op-eds to the Financial Times. But I think we need a new initiative on the table to dig deep into European stocks and to deliver something that will help Ukraine not only to hold the front line, but also to deliver more of a push into the South to change the course of this war. I think there is no alternative to that. Unfortunately, there was frustration at Munich Security Conference with many Central Eastern European, Northern European countries because Estonia, the Czech Republic, Finland, uh, Sweden, many are pushing, but the big Europeans... Germany, France, Italy, Spain, they are too slow. I think this will be the most important discussion of the next weeks uh, to get a European initiative for Ukraine moving. Nico, you say that it has to happen, but can it or will it happen? Because it's not always that easy to get EU leaders to agree on things. The Europeans will not let Russia win. And the Europeans will continue to support Ukraine. Uh, and if you look at the pattern of this war, in the end, Germany, other Europeans, they are doing uh, uh, things into the right direction. Unfortunately, they are always doing it a little bit hesitant and slow. But I'm optimistic that the Europeans will be able to get together on this and to support Ukraine more than they do now. And there's one other factor. I think Ukraine has taken the initiative and I think it shows some fruits to have more common production in Ukraine, to have joint ventures in arms industry, to have repair and maintenance closer to the front lines in Ukraine. 
And I saw at Munich Security Conference that this technology and industry discussion is getting traction, but it will take some time to produce results. But I would not be only pessimistic. I think there is a silver lining here uh, that Europeans will step up for Ukraine. Both of you have mentioned Avdivka, a small Ukrainian town that has been on the front line for years. It was taken in recent days by the Russians and gave the Kremlin its first major victory since May of last year. How much of a blow is the loss of Avdivka strategically or morale-wise to Ukrainians and to the West? And Katya, we'll start with you. Well, as I mentioned before, uh, that Avdivka is only the beginning of these losses for the next year. And I believe that the next one will be Chasifiar and Kupens, because last year there was unfortunately some miscalculation, and uh, we hear more and more that the second line of defense hasn't been built. Uh, in terms of the um, uh, loss of Avdivka, the plans of the retreat were already circulating back in November when the former commander in chief uh, suggested to retreat from it and actually avoid the losses that we can see now. So um, basically, the information about the retreat has been already around for quite a while. Uh, unfortunately, it coincided with the first week uh, of the new commander-in-chief, uh, Alexander Sirsky, so it's not a positive move, uh, given that there is a kind of a biggest uh, reputation he has among the military. As for the um, civilians and uh, military, well, you know that the capture of Avdivka means that Russians would push towards the town of Vogledar in terms of strategic advance. And so Vogledar is in the south and uh, it's still in Donetsk region, but it's uh, very close to the Parisian region as well. And um, this Avdiivka and Chasifiar and Kupensk, given that two last one will be taken, it gives a leverage, it gives leeway to the Russians to take much bigger cities like Slavyansk and Kramatorsk, which would mean that they are planned to capture the whole Donbass. The plans that they had since 2014 uh, would be completed. Nico, how do you see it, the loss of Avdiivka? Strategically, how important is this town in the war? I believe it was the right decision of the armed forces of Ukraine to leave Avdiivka. I was even wondering if they could not have left earlier. Unfortunately, because of lack of resources, Ukraine has the viable military option only to move to flexible defense. And that means to use urban area to build defense positions and to administer losses to the Russian side, hopefully in an asymmetric way as long as possible. And if this is not possible anymore, then move to the next defensive position and again uh, give losses to the Russian side with the hope that at some point the Russian attack, because of the losses, will culminate and come to an end. Ukraine does not have the resources to hold every meter of territory, and it also should not do it because it has to manage especially the personnel resources, but also other resources very wisely now and keep as much resources as possible for a possible attack. I think Ukraine has prioritized the south over the east, and this is a very painful decision to make. But from a military point of view, looking at Ukraine's resources, this is sound. So to me, Avdiivka is not a strategic loss. It's a psychologically difficult loss, especially because the partners in the West have a tendency to overreact on everything. And uh, Avdiivka 
is now withdrawn. Um, other cities might be under pressure. And there's a danger that Western media and Western observers who are not looking at the map carefully will overexpress this into all is lost for Ukraine, Russia is breaking through, it's all hopeless. And that is, of course, not the situation. I agree with Katya that what um, Russia is doing is not a very sophisticated military operation. It is using glide bombs and artillery to completely destroy cities street by street and then to uh, just move forward very slowly. Uh, I'm afraid at least for a certain time we will see a continuation of that on the eastern front of Ukraine. But there might be a development that is more in favor of Ukraine in the south, putting Crimea under pressure. If Ukraine, and there are some indications, gets more precision fire, and if the F-16s will be operational very soon. We've talked a lot about Western and Ukrainian weaknesses. Where are the Russians' weaknesses at this stage? Or as some analysts suggest, is Vladimir Putin able to wait for Western support to wither and simply keep military pressure up along the front lines? Mm, That's a good question. I don't think that the Western uh, help, Western aid uh, will stop simply because nobody wants such an evil to win. Uh, because everyone understands what happened basically with Navalny, because it was not just a death uh, of a political prisoner, it was a murder. So um, no matter how uh, tired people uh, in the West overall with the help to wage the Ukrainian war, no matter how tired they are, they would be even more tired if there will be uh, millions of Ukrainians fleeing this country if Russia wins. And uh, one more question. Sorry, I I forgot it. It was one more question. Yeah, the question was, what are the Russians' weaknesses? Well, I I can just say regarding the weaknesses that um, we can see that slowly uh, dissatisfaction is growing in Russia. We can see that there are movements of women who want their um, husband to come back. So I assume that this is one of the weaknesses that Russia has, uh, the growing uh, dissatisfaction um, and resentment inside Russia. Nico, do you agree? Yeah, I think on the on the military side, uh, Russia is not able anymore to conduct larger scale offensive operations. So we can see a continuation of what we are seeing now, focusing on smaller cities like Avdiivka or Chasivya or Kupiansk, uh, like we heard. Uh, but not large-scale operations that would lead to a breakthrough or a breakthrough being exploited, pushing forward. Russia does not have that capability, and I do not foresee Russia having that capability in this year. And Russia has a personnel problem, not necessarily in the quantity, because Russia is recruiting around a 1,000 new soldiers per day, but in the quality, the qualified Russian military personnel has fallen in this war basically in the first six months, which contributes to Russia not being able to conduct something sophisticated on the military side. It is brute force, and Russia can, for the brute force attack, can produce certain types of ammunition and equipment. It can produce it autonomously without being dependent on components from others. But there is some part of Russian defense industry we need to look into because there are companies circumventing the sanctions via third-card countries. This enables Russia to produce cruise missiles to repair a certain kind of aircraft and to deliver 
more sophisticated technologies to the battlefield and this has to be stopped this is the responsibility of the western partners to be more sharp on the sanctions to uh, go down on countries that are not uh, following up on the export controls i think this has to be done by the g7 but also by the european union and i know there is work going on into that direction clearly putin has not achieved his war aims and it seems to me that he is uh, continuing the war uh, just to continue the war because he hopes for a political opening, mainly around the elections in the United States, where he hopes that might open the way for him uh, for further progress in Ukraine, but also elections in some key countries in the European Union. So it's more a political chance that Putin is betting on than a real military chance. Well, that takes me to my last question, and that is whether Donald Trump winning a second term is going to be a game changer in this war. He's bragged that he would end the war in 24 hours, even though he didn't really describe how he would do it, and even suggested he would support Russia invading NATO countries that aren't spending enough of their GDP on defense. What do each of you think? You know, I'm not very interested in uh, obsessing with Donald Trump and obsessing about everything he says during the campaign, and I think we should move away from that, honestly. I think we should look into how to provide for European security, and Europeans have to do more for that. At the same time, I think in the United States, there has to be a discussion uh, that NATO and European security is a vital interest of the United States. I do not accept this transactional logic that is brought into this. Um, we don't know what Trump will do. I think that's the most honest answer. He wakes up one morning, he hears something, and he does something very unpredictable. I think that's the biggest danger uh, if he should be president. But he's not president yet. I think what we have to be prepared for in Europe is to provide for our own security, to get our defense investment up, to get production rates up in order to support Ukraine and to support ourselves. And those decisions have to be taken now because uh, we cannot throw money at the Russian armed forces in 2024 at the end of the year or in 2025. I see some development in that direction. I also saw some at Munich Security Conference and this has to be continued, but not because of Trump, but because of Ukraine's security and our own security. And the last point to this, there is a chance at the Washington summit to invite Ukraine into NATO. And we should not shy away from that thought and we should find ways to make it possible to extend the invitation to NATO membership to Ukraine in summer before the elections. Katya, what do you think? Are we too obsessed with Donald Trump and how he would affect the war? Or is it a concern? Uh, with regards to Donald Trump, um, as uh, Nico said, that he's absolutely unpredictable person. So uh, he might want to negotiate with Putin and, as he said, to finish everything in 24 hours. But also he might show that he's much stronger than um, Biden and uh, it's in his power to actually uh, help Ukraine to win the war. So it's absolutely unpredictable. However, here in Ukraine, people are definitely concerned and definitely worried about the outcome of the election. And we are closely following it from our homes. Great. Well, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Our next guests will take the discussions closer to home. 
Germany and other European countries welcomed Ukrainian refugees with open arms when Russia attacked Ukraine two years ago, removing bureaucratic hurdles to establishing residency and providing those who needed it with housing and services. As our next guests from the Institute for Employment Research explain, many of the more than million Ukrainian refugees who came to Germany are doing quite well. Most of them live in or near German cities like Berlin. Senior producer Dina El-Sayed spoke via Zoom to Ksenia Katskova, who is a senior researcher at the Institute and specializes in the labor market and social integration of refugees in Germany, and to her fellow researcher at the Institute, Sylvia Schwanhäuser. Sylvia. Who are the Ukrainians who are moving to Germany? And where in the country are they settling in? Yeah, so at the moment and already since the beginning of the war, um, the people that came to Germany uh, from Ukraine are mostly uh, young people. So, of course, there are also a lot of children. But even if we just look at the adult population, um, the mean age is like, 28 years old. So it's really a young population that we're talking about. And then um, we see that mainly women are coming to Germany. So around 70% of older adults are women. And what is really important is that those are mainly single mothers because of the situation. So they came here with their children, but without their partners. And for men, this is completely different. So the Ukrainian men that came to Germany, those uh, came with their families, with their partners and their children. But the women are here alone. So they are single mothers because of this. But the group is also very highly educated. So we see that two thirds of them have tertiary degrees. So they have like a bachelor or a master degree. Um, So they're really, really highly educated. And when we look like where they're coming from, from Ukraine, we see that they really come from the regions that were also severely affected by the war. So like Eastern or Southern uh, Ukraine and also the region around Kiev. If we, for example, look like why were they coming to Germany, we see that they mainly were relying on their networks. So they already knew people here, they had family here, they had friends here. And so that's also like where they're settling at the moment. So mainly there where we already had some citizens from Ukraine living before the war, they're now moving to uh, Germany at these places. And where are they settling in Germany? I mean, if we look like on the federal state level, we see that they're, of course, moving to the um, federal states that also have the largest population of German people like um, Bavaria, Baden-Württemberg, Lower Saxonia. But if we look like in terms of the amount of population that is living there, uh, we see that especially the city-states like Bremen, Hamburg, or Berlin are receiving a lot of refugees. Are they here long-term or are they returning to Ukraine already? I mean, of course, there are some uh, refugees that are returning home, but it's really not a large quantity that is returning. So one year after the beginning of the war, still... um, 93% of all Ukrainian refugees were living in Germany. And it's more like the other way around. So the longer the people are already in Germany, the more stable their intents to stay are. So the longer they're here, 
the more they want to stay forever in Germany. Xenia, what did your study find were the biggest challenges for Ukrainian refugees in Germany? Of course, the first biggest and crucial challenge is learning the German language. First of all, uh, German language is very different from Ukrainian. And it is indeed difficult to learn it from start, uh, given the situation of the refugees. And of course, refugees are different from other types of uh, migrants because they did not have time to prepare for their relocation. So they didn't attend courses in Ukraine. They came without, most of them came without uh, knowledge of German language, but the language is a prerequisite for successful integration. So it means without the language, it is, of course, in Germany, very difficult to be integrated in the labor market, but also to build social networks. So contrary to other countries like Sweden or the Netherlands, where people can also uh, live quite well without uh, knowledge of native language, like only with the knowledge of English, in Germany it is a bit different. So German language is like the first crucial challenge. But of course, there are other challenges as well. They are like typical for all kinds of uh, migrants. So they have to uh, look for apartments, they have to find suitable medical care or child care or schools for their children. Uh, there is a challenge of communication with public offices and authorities. At the beginning, of course, people are disoriented. They don't know which authority to contact, how to proceed with their official procedures. On top of that, for the refugees, there is also a challenge related to their mental health issues due to traumatic experiences and also worries about relatives that were left behind in Ukraine. And maybe later there is a challenge of getting their uh, qualifications recognized because we are talking about highly skilled refugee group. So it is also a big issue. And maybe another challenge is that the ongoing course of the war creates a lot of uncertainties. That is, people simply don't know how the war will continue. And based on that, they're not able to make reasonable decisions, for example, to stay in Germany or to return, to invest into education or take a job, even if it is not corresponding to their skill levels, or to uh, start getting their qualification recognized or not. So because of this uncertainty, it is really difficult to decide. There's been some commentary claiming that Ukrainians integrated better into German society and the work culture here than refugees from other countries or other parts of the world, like the Middle East or Afghanistan. Does this sound accurate to you? I would like to say that it is impossible to compare these two groups, like refugees who came to Germany from Syria or Afghanistan uh, after 2015, and refugees who are coming from Ukraine, for at least two large reasons. Like The first reason is the group composition, Refugees coming from uh, Syria, Afghanistan and other countries, most of them were single young men. Refugees coming from Ukraine, most of them are women with children. Mm-hmm. So um, this is quite difficult to compare to social demographic groups that are so different. And we know that these characteristics are very important for integration, first of all, for the labor market integration. And we know that uh, for women, especially women who were forced to be separated from their partners, there is a very large challenge of the burden of unpaid work, that is housework and childcare. And you know that for single mothers, it is crucial to have access to uh, high quality 
child care infrastructure. And currently in Germany, this is a large problem, not only for migrants, but for the natives as well. The sector of child care should be ardently reformed uh, and improved because there is a lack of staff in the kindergartens and daycare centers. So in order to make uh, women work, we need to have a good child care provision. Then, uh, of course, we cannot compare these two groups because previous wave of refugees, they had absolutely different institutional framework. So they had to go through asylum procedure and Ukrainian refugees were able already to come under the EU temporary protection agreement. I would say that here Germany made a really step forward, learned from the mistakes of the past. Like, for example, people who had to stay in asylum procedures, they had restrictions in where they can live. So concerning their accommodation, they were not really free to travel in Germany and to select the place of residence on their own. They had also restrictions in medical care and access to social welfare, but also to labor market. And there is a wonderful study of uh, our colleague from the Institute who has shown that uncertainty created by the uh, long lasting asylum procedure protracted labor market integration. So when people were in the asylum procedure and they didn't know about their future status, if they will be allowed to stay in Germany or not, of course, it all delayed their integration. Under the EU temporary protection agreement, all of these limitations are lifted. But on the other hand, there are, of course, all the challenges that I have already mentioned, they remain. And first of all, they are related to composition of the group that we are dealing with women who have children who are better educated. Uh, they have access now to German courses or integration courses. And it is known that courses delays labor market integration, but on the other hand, it makes it more sustainable. So I would not directly compare the two groups, but I would say that there is progress. And I hope that the strategy taken by Germany would soon show very good results. We have seen from our estimations, for example, that those who have completed German language courses at high level, like C1, C2, which means uh, fluent in German, they have 21% higher probability of being employed and they earn 38% of uh, wages. It is a strategy which aims at sustainable integration not just uh, pushing people to get first jobs, even if they are of low-skilled uh, requirements. You've talked a little bit about the different frameworks that were put in place to deal with different groups of refugees. In your view, are Germans, whether authorities or civilians, more receptive to Ukrainian refugees than those coming from other countries? Yeah, so I am not aware of any study that would be able to accurately answer this question, but I'm able to cite several studies on ethnic discrimination. And these studies refer not only to Germany, but to many other European countries as well. So there are at least two strands of literature. One is uh, dealing with the discrimination in hiring. So scholars were developing kind of experiments where they were sending fictitious CVs or job applications that uh, have shown similar profiles in terms of skills, but were different with regard to names that were used in these CVs. So they were using native names or foreign sounding names. And they have shown that equally qualified applications were treated differently by the employers. 
So it means that in Germany, for example, using German native names increases average probability of a callback compared to uh, foreign sounding names. But this, as I said, refers to all the European countries. There are studies from Finland, France, Denmark. So it was shown that there is ethnic, religious and racial discrimination in Europe. For France, I have seen a study that shows that African origin applications were most discriminated compared to other European origin applications. And I have also seen a study on Germany that have shown that Muslims were more discriminated than Christians compared yeah, to natives. Is there anything yeah. being done about this discrimination? Are, like, are the authorities aware? Are there any measures being taken to prevent this systematic discrimination? It's difficult to answer really if authorities are aware. I hope that they are aware. And I think that this topic is very important one to treat. And the things that can be done is just really to increase social interaction between the groups, because it was shown that people who interact, they uh, are able to get free of the discriminating attitudes just simply because of the knowledge exchange, because of uh, seeing that other ethnic groups They're not that scary. So it means that the social cohesion in the society can be reached when people interact more. So the integration of ethnic minorities uh, is very important. Mm -hmm. And I think um, the authorities are aware of that. And we have laws in Germany that should help prevent this kind of discrimination. But in practice, it's just hard to like... Go to court, for example, if you think that you were discriminated uh, while searching for a job and so on. So we have laws against it, but it's hard to really have it in practice. I see. Exactly. And the second type of discrimination I mentioned, it's also in the housing market, which means that private landlords discriminate also uh, against people with uh, foreign sounding names. Sylvia, my last question will go to you. Is German support for Ukrainian refugees waning as the war drags on? It's been two years now. If we look like on other opinion polls that other colleagues of us did, um, we see that there is a slight decrease towards um, the support, but it's still like over two thirds of all Germans say that they are pro intake of refugees from Ukraine. So still the, the large majority is um, really supporting uh, Ukrainian refugees. And also colleagues of us from the Dezim Institute, they had a study where they asked Germans if they're willing to like donate money or work as volunteers or take in even refugees from Ukraine. And a lot of them said yes, and they found no indication that this support is declining. So the people from Germany are still very positive and really still very supportive about Ukrainian refugees. Thank you both. Thank you Thank for you. having us. Well, that's our show for today, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Our senior producer is Dina El Sayed. Our social media editor is Noor Trabelsi, and our intern is Eden Brockman. Our podcast is funded by a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. And our partners are Goethe Institute, the Checkpoint Charlie Foundation, and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. 
All Common Ground Berlin episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and X at CG Berlin Podcast.